It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court term already promises to be another consequential and controversial one, with arguments completed in cases on affirmative action, a clash between LGBTQ rights and religious rights, and a theory that could upend elections. And the justices have added more significant cases to their docket for 2023. Several will put them in the middle of heated political debates. Perhaps the most high-profile, cases over President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. Republican special interest and elected officials sued to deny this relief, even for their own constituents. But I'm completely confident my plan is legal. But right now, it's on hold because of these lawsuits. Six Republican-led states and two borrowers are challenging the president's authority to pass the plan, which would forgive up to $20,000 in federal student loans for borrowers earning less than $125,000 a year at an estimated cost of $400 billion. Joining me to preview the cases coming up next year is constitutional law professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Hal, are the student loan cases a showdown over presidential power? I don't think so. First of all, there's an incredibly interesting standing question here is that who can complain about the fact that the federal government is being generous with its money? If a student didn't get the benefit of the cancellation, they probably don't have standing. States who sued can't really show any impact on their finances. The only conceivable group that might have standing is the individuals who process federal loans. They may lose some business, arguably, because of this, but it's just very difficult to see how the courts and indeed the Supreme Court could have taken this case, given the fact that there is so difficult to show standing in the case. And it's even more remarkable that the court took the case before the Court of Appeals had decided it, maybe because it's so important to the economy. But usually they allow the Court of Appeals to ventilate and hear the cases and There were cases filed in several courts of appeals, and the Supreme Court's not going to get the benefit of those decisions. So that's sort of the procedural issue that's quite unique in the case. On the merits, it's a question of interpreting the statute. And in this case, it has to do with the Higher Education Relief Opportunity Act that allows these kind of cancellations in an emergency. And how do you define emergency? That act was passed right after 9-11. Understand that emergency, understand COVID emergency. But by the time the president invoked the statute, the COVID emergency was not totally passed, but it was just lingering. And obviously, we've had the vaccines. And so the question after the vaccines is, are we still in an emergency? And does the statute therefore give the president the power to cancel the debt? Or is this really a unauthorized action. The first case they took was from Republican states. 
Then they added another case from two borrowers who say they were unfairly excluded from the full scope of the program. Does that tell you that the justices are searching for standing here? I think someone is uncomfortable with standing, and they should be. I mean, this is a very important issue with a huge impact on the economy, understood. And indeed, the president is not on the most firm footing here in taking the action that he did. But again, the issue is who really has standing to complain when the government, perhaps fairly or unfairly, decides to cancel federal debt. Again, the only narrow plaintiff that I can envision is a processor of federal loans if they could show that they get less business because of the cancellation. Is a processor involved in the Republican state suit? There is one entity which arguably is a processor, but they haven't even demonstrated that in the papers yet. So there is a possible plaintiff in that case, but it's unclear in terms of the pleading whether or not they would have any kind of harm. The Supreme Court has seemed hostile to President Biden's initiatives during the pandemic. And I'm wondering if that hostility will carry through to this. Oh, I think so. I mean, I think if they reach the merits, I'm well convinced that the Supreme Court will rule that the congressional legislation didn't clearly give the president the power to cancel debt in this kind of context. They could use one of several mechanisms to do that. They could read the statute narrowly. They could redefine emergency, or they could use what's called the major questions doctrine to say that Congress can't leave the administration that much room when the impact is so large, it has to speak with greater specificity. So one of those grounds I think the court could rely upon in ruling against the Biden administration. But it's going to be difficult for them to find a real case to opine on. So we'll have to stay tuned. I mean, there could be a lot of reasons why the justices kept the plan on hold during the appellate process here. But is one of the reasons that they're considering revoking it? Oh, absolutely. I think the court intervened early because they recognized that if the Biden administration had processed this, there would be a huge impact on the economy and be very difficult to unwind the cancellations in a fair and orderly process. So that would suggest that, as you mentioned, a kind of hostility to the merits of the Biden administration's cancellation of the student debt. There's another case coming up next month that may be precedent-setting. Turkey's state-owned Hulk Bank is seeking dismissal of criminal charges that it helped Iran evade economic sanctions by laundering billions of dollars in oil and gas revenues. So the Turkish bank evidently helped launder somewhere close to $20 billion of Iranian oil assets in contravention of our laws against doing business with Iran. And so criminal charges were brought against the bank here in the United States because some of the laundering took place within the U.S. financial system. There has never been a criminal action brought against a foreign state-owned enterprise in our history. And this was really the first one. And the Second Circuit held that there's no law immunizing a state-owned bank for its commercial activities the way there would be to protect a state diplomat. And so the criminal charges 
could go forward. So this is really unprecedented, and it's a major change which would have a ripple effect around the world because usually we treat foreign governments, whether they're doing commercial activities or not, in a very special way. We have a whole statute, the Federal Sovereign Immunities Act, which limits when you can even sue state-owned enterprises. But this would be saying that, well, Congress didn't say you can't have a criminal action against a state-owned enterprise. And so now we have the first one, and we'll see if the Supreme Court lets it stand. My guess is that it will, but who knows? What's Turkey's argument for why the bank shouldn't be prosecuted? First of all, it's unprecedented that there has never been this kind of action. And they're extrapolating from the diplomatic precedents, which suggests that there is diplomatic immunity for its officers. And Congress has seen fit that we cannot prosecute diplomats for ordinary crimes. And so they're suggesting that the danger would be if a state-owned enterprise, you basically end up limiting the kind of functional immunity that's given to leading members of different countries who may be directors on the bank or maybe their relatives are working in the bank. And so this would chip away at that kind of immunity. Now, the government says, look, it's a commercial activity. And just the way under the Federal Sovereign's Immunity Act, you can be sued for commercial activities. If those very same commercial activities give rise to criminal charges, so be it. And I think the government's got a pretty strong argument here, even though it's never happened before. Sometimes if Congress just didn't address it and the prosecutors have moved in and sought to use this as a lever against the Turkish bank, and I think this may be precedent setting. Why do you think the Supreme Court is going to allow the prosecution to go forward? Congress didn't preclude it. And in the absence of congressional statute, the court would have to rely upon some other kind of analogy, such as diplomatic immunity, to stop the prosecution. And and to stop the prosecution of a bank for its commercial activities seems a pretty far stretch from stopping a prosecution from a diplomat who's been accused of a hit and run or some other criminal offense. Now, there's a really interesting criminal case coming up involving the Sixth Amendment right to confront witnesses. Adam Samia was on trial for murder with two other defendants, and the prosecution introduced a redacted confession of one of the other defendants that identified Samia as the one who pulled the trigger, and he was convicted. So there's been settled precedent that we have a confrontation clause in our Constitution and that individuals who are on trial have the right to confront their accusers. This is difficult to apply when two people are on trial for the same offense. And the court has earlier held that a confession from a co-defendant cannot be introduced at trial because, in essence, it would deprive one defendant of the right to confront the co-defendant who made the confession. So this case is in the middle because the confession didn't include the name of the criminal defendant. The co-defendant basically confessed and the name was bleeped out. And the argument is, which I think is a relatively strong one from the criminal defendant, was that even though his name wasn't used, the confession is incriminating and therefore his rights to confront that witness are jeopardized. Obviously, if you're in a joint trial, you can't really confront the co-defendant as a witness. That's the difficulty. So the court will have to wrestle with to what extent a statement from a co-defendant is incriminating 
to the point where the rights to confrontation would be jeopardized. So I think that the court will split differently than the traditional conservative liberal bloc in this case. And the question would be how robust a confrontation clause they want to preserve. And my guess is that there will be some support for the criminal defendant in the case. Do you think Justice Gorsuch will likely vote with the liberals here? I think Justice Gorsuch in particular will be sympathetic to the confrontation clause in this case. So you'll see some unusual votes. Hal, you're going to stay with me. And coming up, Professor Harold Crenton and I will discuss more 2023 cases including one that could be a reckoning for social media companies. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Big Tech faces a reckoning at the Supreme Court next year as the justices decide a case challenging the legal shield for social media platforms in Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. The question is whether some of the world's most powerful companies should be protected as neutral forums for speech or held accountable for their content. And the justices' decision to hear the case puts them in the middle of the political debate. Jack Dorsey, then CEO of Twitter, testified, along with the CEOs of Facebook and Google, about the importance of Section 230 on Capitol Hill in October of 2020 and then again in March of 2021. We believe in free expression. We believe in free debate and conversation to find the truth. At the same time, we must balance that with our desire for our service not to be used to sow confusion, division, or destruction. Removing Section 230 will remove speech from the Internet. The two cases against YouTube and Twitter involve lawsuits brought by the families of victims killed in overseas terrorist attacks. I've been talking to Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Hal, give us some background on Section 230. So the Communications Decency Act provides immunity for an online platform so they won't be sued for offensive material 
that is posted or published on their site. And this is a key defense for entities such as Facebook and YouTube and Twitter so that the companies will not be sued for any kind of defamatory or other kind of objectionable content that's published. But in these cases, there's a twist. The plaintiffs have said that because these entities, these online platforms, use algorithms to suggest what viewers may want to see, they promote specific content to viewers, that the algorithm itself basically makes them forfeit their neutrality and allows them to be sued. So given there were no algorithms when the Communications Decency Act was enacted, and so now that all of these companies rely upon algorithms to promote and say, you might like this story, look at this movie, it looks like it's something you would like, that this is now departing from the kind of impartiality that the Communications Decency Act would require and therefore would allow these entities to be sued. This would cause havoc in online platforms because they rely upon these algorithms. And yet, you know, looking at the Communications Decency Act, I think this is going to be a close case, and indeed it would cause a huge disruption in terms of how entities such as Twitter and YouTube do business. Is this about the preliminary question of whether these companies can even be sued rather than the merits of whether YouTube and Twitter are responsible for terrorist attacks overseas? Yeah, if the immunity is lost, then the entities will have to be in court defending themselves. And that, of course, is disruptive in itself. But then the doctrines will have to be sort of worked out about when are you aiding and abetting terrorism? Do you aid and abet terrorism by having a how-to manual published on your site? Or if you're allowing someone to give inspirational talks, exhorting the terrorist ideal, is that aiding and abetting terrorism? So that would be on the merits of case, but obviously the companies want to avoid the, the merits by seeking the immunity that Section 230 seemingly confers. The justices are stepping into the political hotbed that Section 230 has become. You know, Elon Musk has put Section 230 into the headlines, if nothing else did, and so did President Trump, because all of them, the question is, what kind of neutrality must these providers adhere to? And so the question is, will this case prompt Congress to act? Congress has not wanted to touch it during the Trump controversy, and now we have the Musk controversy, and still Congress has not made any kind of serious moves to revisit Section 230. Maybe the Supreme Court case will. The Ninth Circuit sided with Google but said the case against Twitter could go forward. What was the difference between those two cases? The Twitter case included a claim based upon the Anti-Terrorism Act, which was not in the Google case itself. And so the issue would be whether the Anti-Terrorism Act itself circumvents the Section 230 shield, and that's the claim that would go forward in the, in the second case. Justice Clarence Thomas has suggested treating social media companies like public utilities. Have any of the other justices given any hint as to their position here? Well, I, I think that the court couldn't do that unless Congress so indicated, right? The court has no power to carve off these industries and make special rules for them. But I do think that what Justice Thomas was, was suggesting is that Congress really has to overhaul the process and decide 
what kind of checks and balances to impose because it is true that Twitter and Facebook are, in a sense, the new kind of utilities. There are requests for the Supreme Court to take up related social media laws. There are social media laws in Texas and Florida that, right. that bar basically social media companies with more than 50 million viewers from discriminating on the basis of viewpoint. I don't know how the social media companies would be able to deal with that. Do you think the court should take that up as well? I think the court will be forced to take up the issue of viewpoint discrimination um, relatively soon. Obviously, it's not indicated in the Section 230 challenge before the court this year, but because of states such as Texas trying to regulate what Twitter and Facebook can do, I think the court will, within a year or two, take up the question as to what kind of viewpoint neutrality is consistent to impose upon a private entity. In recent years, the justices have shown an interest in tribal issues. They've already heard a case over the Indian Child Welfare Act last month, and they're going to hear a case in 2023 over the fierce competition for Colorado River water rights. It pits the Navajo Nation against a slew of opponents, the federal government, Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, and regional water management authorities. The Colorado River supplies the water for about 40 million American households. And so it's a very contentious issue about how to allocate water rights. And the states have been involved in it and the federal government's been involved with it. But there is a Supreme Court case that recognized implicitly anyway that the Navajo Nation was due a certain amount of water because of the treaty rights that existed years ago. So as water is becoming more scarce and as the demand for water is increasing, the Navajo Nation says, no, we're not going to participate in any kind of restructuring of rights. We want what was promised to us. And that's what the court below held. So that's teeing up the issue for the Supreme Court. And the court's been sensitive to the rights of Native Americans in recent terms. And I think Justice Gorsuch is partially responsible for this. He's been very interested in Native American rights. And I think other members of the court are becoming increasingly interested, as as you suggested. And if you understand that a treaty is a treaty, then you end up being much more sympathetic to the Navajo Nation's claim here, which is what the Ninth Circuit, in fact, found. The Ninth Circuit said the U.S. has a fiduciary duty to protect the interests that it at least implicitly promised to the Navajo and treaties generations ago. So the court has manifested a renewed interest in how to understand the separate sovereigns of the Indian tribes. The court is going to consider a federal law that could potentially criminalize immigration advice and ensnare preachers, lawyers, and even grandparents. And the Ninth Circuit struck down the law. Yeah, the Ninth Circuit held that this law, which prohibits even encouraging illegal immigration, is a violation of the First Amendment because it would apply in too many contexts. It would apply when someone, according to the court, might be criticizing immigration laws. It might apply when someone is just advocating for the best way to get asylum in the United States. And so it was just overbroad. And I think that the Ninth Circuit sort of went too quickly over one part of the statute, because one part of the statute says that it's only a crime to advocate for illegal immigration. First of all, you have to know it's illegal. But second of all, you have to do it for private financial gain. And I think the private financial gain really limits the number of contexts in which 
this statute can be used problematically. And historically, the this has only been used for individuals who solicit illegal immigration. In the case itself, there was someone who made up a whole business by saying that if you pay me money, I'll try to ensure that you can be adopted by families in the United States. That's private gain. And he knew what he was doing was totally illegal. And there is no route to asylum through being adopted wholesale by the U.S. family. And I think the law can be used as long as you say you're kind of soliciting people to violate the law and the typical solicitation case. And if you're doing so for private financial gain, those are two ways you can limit the statute in a way that avoids the overbreadth that the Ninth Circuit was so concerned about. So that's the case that's going to go before the Supreme Court. I don't see it as much of a difficult First Amendment case that the Ninth Circuit does, but Obviously, it is a broad statute, and we'll see what the court does. The Supreme Court has certainly rebuffed the Ninth Circuit on the first case, <laughs> and my guess is they'll be rebuffed on the second case. Well, the Ninth Circuit is the most reverse circuit, so the odds are good. Let's look at another Ninth Circuit case, this one involving arbitration. Coinbase Global is being sued by a customer who wants the cryptocurrency exchange to compensate him for the $31,000 he lost after he gave a scammer remote access to his account, and Coinbase wants arbitration. So under the Federal Arbitration Act, Congress provided that parties who seek arbitration can appeal the denial of a motion to compel arbitration. And that's important because normally a denial of a motion to compel arbitration is not a final order. So Congress stepped in and said, we care about arbitration so much that we're going to make an exception to the final order rule and allow an interlocutory or non-final appeal when a court denies a motion to compel arbitration. Obviously, companies want to use arbitration because it's much cheaper than allowing for any kind of court resolution of challenges, particularly by consumers, as in this case involving Coinbase. And so the question that arises, and the courts were split on this, is if there is an appeal of a non-frivolous case, does the district court have to stay the case and wait for the court to resolve the appeal, or can they continue the challenge in the case while the appeal is pending? Courts were split. And Congress wasn't clear in the Federal Arbitration Act whether the court had to stop proceedings pending the appeal. But I think the logic of granting this interlocutory appeal right would suggest that Coinbase is right and that the court should stop proceedings to give the court, appellate court, a chance to say whether or not arbitration should have been ordered. And the Supreme Court has supported arbitration over and over again in cases. Yeah, yeah, the Supreme Court's been very favorable, and so my guess is that they will strengthen the right of arbitration by saying that pending appeal of a denial of a motion for arbitration, nothing can go on in the trial court until the arbitration issue is resolved one way or the other. Coming up next, most of the cases coming up next year, with the exception of a few, don't have political connotations. And you think that may help the justices to foster better working relationships? Of the cases that we're so far seeing in 2023, only the student loans case falls within this traditional sort of liberal versus conservative rift that's really tearing the Supreme Court apart. I mean, there's a number of criminal procedure cases, criminal statutes that need to be construed, and I think it will have different kind of alignments 
on the cases than we see in most of the other cases. And it'll be difficult to predict who's going to be on what side. Maybe, just maybe, by trying to get different kinds of coalitions on these cases as opposed to, you know, typical Dobbs case or other kinds of major political cases, maybe the justices will be able to work together a little more and we won't have such a fractured, angry court. We shall see. Thanks so much, Hallie. Appreciate all the work you did, all the research to be able to discuss these cases. That's Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago Kent College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.